with issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 282 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and at the weekend I went to see The Prodigy a mere 26 years after I first saw them. Wowzers, how was that? How do you have the energy? <laughs> well, Jen, I would describe the gig demographic as very much risk of bad back. <laughs> <laughs> that is a lot of standing up for people of our age. Like, oh, oh. And clearly a lot of them have gone back to their party ways just for this gig. Yeah, so like that must be very strange to be like this was sort of, you know, I don't know, in the night like considered bit naughty, bit anarchic even. Punk, I think, the prodigy, yeah. like punk dance music. Yeah, yeah. And Jen, we left early because I was bored. <gasps> I know, and I'm so sad to report that. But the acoustics were not good to the songs. They all sounded the same when they do not all sound the same. No Keith, no Leroy. Yeah. You know, Keith, huge presence, very much missed. And they did a gorgeous, Firestart was gorgeous, actually. Who'd have thought it could be so emotional? And they did it all with lasers and they lasered Keith's face and it was kind of his voice. But as well as that being amazing and gorgeous and very emotional, it kind of showed there was a huge hole there, right? Uh, Should we go and get the train before it empties out? (laughs) (laughs) Alexandra Palace is an arse to get to. So yeah, Yeah, it's not always a bad idea. But also I felt like I'd maybe grown as a person who wasn't just like, well, I have to stay to the end, I have to stay to the end. And so, yeah, we toddled home and put them on like the way we remembered them and had a lovely time at home listening to The Prodigy. I've always been a let's leave five minutes early before the train (laughs) fills up kind of a gal, especially when I'm watching Charlton Athletic. But that's a whole other story. It's good to miss those last minute goals we concede. Anyway, (laughs) I'm Jen Offord and I finally won a giant cuddly toy. Cuddly toy? Cuddly toy? We won the generation game, Jen. No, I was oh. at the uh, Harwich, the local Christmas market yesterday with my daughter and my mother and a friend. There's like a, you know, that thing that's like, guess the name of the cuddly toy kind of thing. And they've got like a bunch of selections that you can choose. And I was like, I was playing on behalf of Lyra, obviously. Sure. We'll go with sure. Mm-hmm. I saw that Orion wasn't taken. Orion being a constellation... Obviously, Lyra is also a constellation. So yeah. I was like, let's go for Orion. Cute. Let's go for Orion. And the cuddly toy's name was Orion. So look, I won, a, I won her a prize. Amazing. And is she a big fan of Orion? Yeah. She can't say his name, but she's a big fan of him. <laughs> Does she call him Ian? <laughs> I tried to explain to her this morning. You can imagine how much of this this the my, my three-year-old daughter took on board. I tried to explain to her this morning what she was named after and how the character that she's named after, obviously Lyra from the uh, Philip Pullman books, who she was named after had a friend called Yorick Burnison who is an armoured bear, uh-huh. which is why she has so many polar bears. Because the cuddly toy is a polar bear, I probably oh, should okay. have said. Cool. Yorick Burnison wasn't an option. They missed a trick there. They did. Harwich, sort your lives out. Anyway, yeah. Read no, his dark up. materials. Yeah, I was delighted. Delighted, but it is really quite big <laughs> I have a big polar bear toy bought for me from Tesco many many years ago but it's, it's absolutely gorgeous and he's just called bear I was going to say is he called Ian no he's not called Ian I just love it when kids have like there's a name and they can't quite grasp it so they turn it into a much more sort of like down to earth name I love that so I was always <laughs> Kayla because my little cousins couldn't say the Mick bit at the beginning yeah. Kayla 
and my sister was always La because they couldn't say Isla. So yeah, we were the most scouse sounding people ever. La, Kayla. <laughs> <laughs> They've learned how to say it now because they're in their thirties. So well done them. She can say Jennifer, which is better than either of my brothers managed. <laughs> is that when she's really cross with you? She doesn't call you Jennifer. Mommy. Jennifer. No, I can't remember why she's she's recently learned that that's my name, that Mummy has an actual name. She can say Jennifer. Apparently, my eldest brother couldn't say Jennifer when I was born, which is how I ended up with the nickname Boonifer. <laughs> Boonifer. I love it. Like, she's three and she's realised that you have your own name. And in another 30 years, she'll realise you've got your own life. So, you know, not long to wait. <laughs> Coming up, as well as uh, my future life, um, I chat to writer, academic and broadcaster Emma Dabbery about beauty standards, empowerment and her new book, Disobedient Bodies, Reclaim Your Unruly Beauty. Hannah gets to be a hero just for fixing a hoover when she chats to Fiona Deer, co-director of UK Strategy and Operations at The Restart Project, which aims to help us fix our own stuff and prevent it going to landfill. Wow. In Jenny Off The Blocks, we're fighting fit again with Katie Taylor and blimey, that's a lot of voices. In this week's Rated or Dated, we revisit 1998's Little Voice. I am joined by academic author and broadcaster Emma Dabbery. Emma, hi, thanks for joining me. Hello, how are you? Very well, thank you. It's good to finally talk to you for various reasons. It's taken a while to, to pull this off. So we are here to talk about your new book, Disobedient Bodies, Reclaim Your Unruly Beauty. Could you start off, Emma, by telling me a little bit about the book, please? Yeah, sure. So I feel like when I was approached by Wellcome Trust to write about the topic of beauty, it was obviously that's extremely broad and it could go in any one of many, many directions. So the first thing for me to do was to kind of identify what it was that, that I wanted to explore more deeply. And actually, I really did want to have a greater understanding of why, not only myself, but I feel like most women I know have or have had at some point in their lives, just this sense of like, kind of self-loathing about their appearance also kind of irrespective of how they actually look. And I wanted to understand where that comes from. And we're kind of routinely told that it's from unrealistic beauty standards and the advertising industry. And it's not that those things are without influence, but I wanted to know why they find such fertile ground, like why we are so vulnerable to so easily feeling bad about ourselves. So, like as a historian and a sociologist, what do we think about the history, first of all? Yeah, I'm just fascinated by the past because it's so clearly responsible for our present, for why things are the way they are. And I think it's often difficult to understand why things are the way they are without having a sense of the kind of historical processes that, that have brought us to where we are. So I was kind of looking at ideas about the body in in like western philosophy and in western discourse and going back millennia going back at least as far as plato well first of all there's this separation of the body and the mind and we have this very binary way of actually of viewing the world where we kind of we've organized everything according to these binaries so one of them is this distinction between the mind and the body it goes back to plato but this idea of binaries more generally 
um, is really kind of enshrined by the philosophy of Rene Descartes. And so even if people aren't familiar with Cartesian dualism, they will be familiar with the world organized according to the division between men and women, black and white, body and mind, culture and nature, right and wrong, good and bad, perfect or flawed. That is how we've we've organized reality according to these binaries. So within this separation of the body and the mind, actually within all of the binaries, there's always like a hierarchy. Um, One of them is always superior and one of them is always inferior. With the body and the mind distinction, the mind is the superior one. The mind is like the place of cerebral intellectualism and the body is kind of like the home of like the slimy desires of, of, mm. of the flesh. And the body has to be like controlled and disciplined and kind of subject to these regulatory procedures by the mind. You also have this allocation. The, the mind-body distinction is also like deeply gendered men, European men, came to be associated with the mind. So it's them that's capable of, you know, rational, scientific thought. And women and racialized people came to be associated with bodies, as bodies. And so the stigma that is is attached to bodies in Western discourse is then kind of transferred to women and to racialized people. So I'm kind of going into all of that history and looking at how that kind of determines so much of our attitudes about bodies, beauty, and gender. I was just thinking about that point which you make in the book about how men became associated with the mind and women became associated with the body. So beauty, there is a lot of importance attached to it in a lot of ways. It's seen as a frivolity. Yeah. You know, silly women and, and all that, you yes. know, become <laughs> become associated with that. I mean, I've got two points about that. One, it's quite interesting, I think, that, you know, we think about sort of gender stereotypes around men around strength and things like that that men weren't more associated with the body right is that a bit of a weird paradox yeah so there is stuff around like men and strength but in terms of like that body mind distinction men are firm are the ones firmly like associated with rationality scientific thought intellectual even though there is that tradition of like men and physical strength in terms of like scientific reasoning that is and it's not all men (laughs) it's european men so actually often black people and including black men historically were far more relegated to the domain of the body not for or or intellectual or cerebral pursuits you know not for us so yeah no that that distinction is is a long-standing one in western your background is your mother's irish right and and your dad is nigerian you found some slightly more encouraging schools of thought in other cultures, right? When you were sort of looking into all of this. Yeah, I was looking at pre-colonial, pre-Christian, pre-capitalist traditions in lots of different parts of the world. So that distinction of the body and the mind is, while that binary view is now kind of like, I guess like a globally held in many ways, it does have its origins in like Western discourse. So I was looking at kind of philosophical traditions that don't have that distinction between the body and the mind, that see a person as far more integrated and whole. They have a different spiritual dimension. They even see the world as populated by not just us, but actually the living us, the unborn and the ancestral realm. So basically, metaphysically, things are just understood not in the same binary way that we have, but in ways that are far more kind of integrated and and holistic. And also where there's not this sort of 
sense of contempt or like loathing for for poor bodies? Like what impact does that have on people's relationships to bodies and how beauty was how beauty was understood, yeah. Something that you write in the book, beauty is overemphasized as well as held in contempt, which I thought was really interesting. And again, this coming back to this idea of beauty as a sort of frivolity. If you look at it another way, our appearance, the way that we dress ourselves, the way that we make ourselves up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, it's it, it's about self-expression as much as just wanting to look nice, right? It depends on the the individual. Yeah, it absolutely can be about self-expression, and it can be about resistance, and it can be rebellious, as our presentation can be, of course. I also think that it this notion that it is kind of purely superficial and and purely frivolous is also because it's like we're told that we should love ourselves kind of as we are but then we live in a society that makes it kind of virtually impossible to do so but if we were to truly enjoy the experience of having bodies and being embodied then wouldn't we enjoy the processes of like adornment and, 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 and beautification of those bodies, you know? So while the book is arguing that we particularly now, like specifically live in a time where the visual and the physical is like hugely, hugely overemphasized, that at the same time, it's not to completely disregard the potential for kind of like joy and community and sensory pleasure that exists in practices and processes of beautification and in the kind of adornment of one's body. So I thought that was a really interesting point about social media, and I'm sure this is one that, you know, people pick up on quite a lot. But social media, you know, the point you make in the book is that we've built these communities and campaigns around empowerment and diversity and celebration of those things. And yet, in many ways, you know, we're under more pressure than we've ever been before. Mm-hmm. With this kind of like culture that we have of, I don't know, Instagram and TikTok and filters and yada, yada, yada. You know, I, I do think this is a, a gendered issue, but obviously men are also impacted by this, right? Do you think that that has sort of changed in, in the last 10 years? Do you think men are under a lot more pressure now? I hadn't found the book to be as woman oriented as it became. It's actually far more so than my previous books have been um, my PhD specifically that actually explores masculinity so it, it was it was kind of the first time I focused specifically on women so much but I thought because of the specificity of the relationship to beauty for women and because of the length of the book I just didn't have capacity to get into the complexities for men but I do think men are under far more pressure now than they were say when I was in my teens or in my 20s this next generation of men there's so much emphasis like on their bodies and on having like on going to the gym and like having like a really kind of like worked out body in a way that for my generation guys could just kind of I guess there were guys that went to the gym but it wasn't like cool it certainly wasn't the expectation it was like cooler to just be like I don't know just kind of skinny and I don't know, self-destructive. It was kind of more rock and roll. <laughs> it really shifted. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, this visual economy, this visual culture that, that we live in. But it also has to do with the kind of like the far more entrenched and kind of rapacious 
form of or expression of neoliberal capitalism that is like kind of turbocharged now and permeates under this visual economy that we live in and this sense of constant productivity and constant improvement you can always be better you can always look better you can always be a better version of yourself so I feel like that's also feeding into what's happening with men but I do yeah I think that this is a feminist issue and obviously you you know you reference Naomi Wolf and and the beauty myth which is I think an amazing book and really makes a compelling case about the you know the the link between capitalism and beauty norms we've not really come very far since then have we and in fact as you know as you sort of pointed out we in fact we've just applied it to everyone that's that's a quality now you can all feel shit about yourselves (laughs) right (laughs) do you think we've made any progress do you think that we at least are more aware of the kind of capitalist forces at work now i don't know to be honest, I feel like they're more entrenched now. We say the word, oh yeah, it, it, this is capitalist, but there's actually very little analysis, I feel like, in public discourse of like what, what, that, actually, what that actually means. So I think like we maybe use language that references phenomenon, but we don't really analyse it. I don't feel that hopeful. <laughs> you make the point that you yourself love a beauty lotion and potion. And, you know, it would talk about capitalism. They're not paying me to say this. Uh, there's a new Sephora opening in Westfield this week. And Emma, I'm beyond excited about it. I'm beyond <laughs> excited about it. So given that these norms, they are so kind of entrenched in us. And there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to put some lipstick on or, you know, do your hair a certain way or, or whatever. But given that, you know, we are sort of conditioned to, to participate in this, how do we reject it? Because your book is kind of a manifesto as well, isn't it? I would say. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> I don't feel that like things like processes or practices, you know, that you engage in to make yourself attractive to yourself. And also like feeling attraction, wanting to feel attra- attraction, like desire, desirability. These things are not, they're not like inherently wrong. It's just that when all of our social relations kind of are entangled with commerce and also with an operating logic that just is based on hyper-individualism and not only encourages but kind of demands that we're constantly in competition with each other. It's like then it's where all of these quite natural human emotions or ordinary human emotions become charged in a way that kind of creates problems. Let's even think about, like, one of the things I write about in the book is things like jealousy and, and, and envy because so much of beauty culture is predicated on those kind of emotions and so much of what happens on social media is about engendering competition between people and people performing better than others and, like, accruing more engagement, accruing more likes, whatever. It's this arena that, like, yeah, encourages individualism and competition and kind of pits us against each other and the beauty arena I feel like really does pit women against that but I feel that emotions like yeah say jealousy and and, and envy are just ordinary human emotions um, that would exist under any political or economic or social system but we live in one that encourages and demands and incentivizes our worst tendencies so I wanted to think about cultures or to, to just use examples from cultures that, one, 
prioritize cooperation over competition. So those kind of tendencies that we have that maybe like aren't the best will still exist, but they won't be encouraged. We try and mitigate against them rather than like, rather than incentivize them. I think we're often told that the way things are currently is just like the natural order of things. It's, it's just the way things are. And that many of these things are just foundational truth. And so with the book, I wanted to give examples from times and places where, yeah, things had been very different. Not to paint those cultures kind of through rose-tinted spectacles or say we should, we should try and recreate those times and places, but just to give kind of concrete examples of how things might have operated like very differently to the way they do now, to just know that there are alternatives that are that are possible. And that is how we reclaim our unruly beauty. I mean, I think partially, partially it is. I also write about the importance of solidarity and sorority amongst women because, our, like I said, we're pitted against each other. And I feel like being in competition with and divided from each other weakens us and makes us more vulnerable to these kind of like predatory forces. I think that female solidarity, well, I think solidarity actually overall, but in this instance, I'm kind of focusing on, on women's solidarity, I think is a really powerful antidote to all of that competition and division. So I was writing about ways in which like women can come together and like, you know, kind of do different activities together and engage in different kind of rituals and like practices together and stuff that can kind of, yeah, counteract the way we're pitted against each other. So that's one of the other things. I also feel a deeper connection to ourselves. Again, we live in we live in a society that has conspired or conditioned us rather for a long time to be very disconnected, not only from each other, but also from like the world of which we're a part, the natural world of which we're a part and disconnected from ourselves. And I think like spiritual practices and also just immersive time spent in nature can help us like reconnect with ourselves and with our environment in a way that I think strengthens us against more kind of like hollow and superficial pursuit that we engage with to try and like fill the emptiness <laughs> that is inside. <laughs> So many of us as a result of the kind of society that we live in. I have to say, I really liked the stuff that you wrote about getting ready with your friends as a teenager. Lots of um, young women will have had that experience of, you know, getting ready for a night out and, and you know, you all do your hair together and you kind of have that, yeah, that sort of feeling like anything could happen on this night out, that sort of hopefulness, I guess, uh -huh. of, of what, what the night is, is going to be. And uh, yeah, I've had really, really fond and vivid memories of, of those experiences as a teenager as well. And I think that, you know, you, you kind of miss that as an adult, don't you? You don't really get to do that anymore. And it, yeah, I thought that idea of that kind of collective experience was really powerful and, and not frivolous, I don't think. Like those are real kind of moments of friendship and bonding. Yeah, I completely agree. And actually, I was kind of making a, a call to recognize the 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 importance of those gatherings and not just see them as something without merit and just kind of like silly and actually one of the things that i write about in the book is like the witch hunt and the enclosure of land at where people were like forcibly moved off their land and 
is the introduction of, of private property in a way that this land that was held in common that everyone had access to started to become the the, the private property of the aristocracy and the, the ruling classes. So that shift of kicking people off the land overlap with the, with the witch hunts and something that I found so fascinating was the way that spaces where women had real kind of like community and power and influence and spent a lot of time, you know, in each other's company were, were really targeted and the opportunities for women to come together in those ways were greatly diminished. And in that same period, with the emergence of the this kind of notion of private property, we, I also write about the way marriage was transformed and how women would have had all of these relationships with kind of other women that were important. But with the movement of society um, to being organized in a way where the nu- nuclear monogamous family became the primary unit of society, women's most important relationship is then seen as being or becomes redesigned, reimagined uh, as a repositioned as with their husband. So the most important, the primary relationship, yeah, is kind of with this man who increasingly women were becoming dependent on because of the movement to like wage labor and all of this stuff that was happening at the time that women didn't have access to. So women didn't have access to opportunity in this new society that was being created but they also lost access to the spaces and relationships that they would have had before um so you see their role being kind of like increasingly diminished and the spheres where they had kind of power and influence being increasingly diminished um so anyway the point i'm trying to make is like the the importance of women having relationships with like having friendships yeah with other women and having like kind of like community having meaningful relationships like with other women and I found I found the fact that that was kind of something that was intentionally targeted because it was seen as threatening like really fascinating Disobedient Bodies Reclaim Your Unruly Beauty is published by Profile Books and the Welcome Collection and it is available now it's a very interesting read I absolutely recommend it to people um, where can we find you on the socials if we want to follow what else you're up to? Because you're up to a lot. I saw you on Question Time the other night. Oh, gosh, that feels like a lifetime ago. I think it was only about five weeks ago. I'm just there under my name, Emma Dabry. What am I on? I'm on Instagram, Twitter, less active on Twitter. Thank you so much for chatting to me. You're welcome. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we deliver a devastating left hook to the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. First up, it's another huge congratulations to Mary Earps, who has added yet another trophy to what one can only imagine is an increasingly busy mantelpiece. This time, it's the BBC Women's Football of the Year Award, the first time ever that a goalkeeper has won it. It was also announced this week that the BBC Sports Personality of the Year Awards will take place on December 19th, with nominees to be announced in due course. I previously said on this very podcast that Earps would never win it because, and I quote myself here, women. Apparently, I had completely forgotten that Beth May did in fact win it last year. I can't see back-to-back lionesses winning it, but I'm sure she'll be nominated and I'd love to see it. The way she just sort of shrugs off accolade after accolade, like it's really not that big a deal. I mean, I would be sobbing and probably just taking my trophies to the shop with me, to be honest. 
So it's not even just that she's brilliant. She's just really, really likeable as well. On to another likeable character in football, not a woman, but I can't let this week's Jenny off the blocks pass without giving a tip of the hat to former England manager Terry Venables, who died this week aged 80 following a long illness. He's been absolutely lauded by his former players and peers for his tactical ability as a coach and generally being a top bloke. I'll tell, of course, oversaw probably my first real footballing heartbreak in 1996 when we went out in the Euros as we lost to Germany on penalties in the semi-finals. We all know that current England manager Gareth Southgate took the flak for that one. And please do listen to my International Men's Day interview with James Graham, who wrote the play Dear England about this very subject. But I digress. It's one of the best chances we've had at winning a tournament in my lifetime, and I will remember Venables with much fondness for that exciting summer. Okay, let's talk boxing, and specifically Katie Taylor, because she is back with a bang, literally. It's genuinely quite hard to keep up to date with Taylor's titles because since turning pro in 2016, she has held a lot. In 2019, of course, she became a two-weight world champion. Earlier this year, she suffered her first ever loss as a professional, which saw her lose her WBA, WBC, WBO, IBO and the ring light welterweight titles, although she still had her lightweight titles. Back in May, she lost out to Brit Chantelle Cameron in Dublin and has been waiting for the opportunity since then to avenge that loss. Well, she was in luck on Saturday as she took on Cameron in a rematch and edged past her on a majority points decision by the judges. It was pretty tight and Taylor actually struggled to stay on her feet in the closing moments. But while one judge scored the bout as a draw, the other two scored 98-92 and 96-94, so, so tight in Taylor's favour. That means that Taylor, who has absolutely dominated her weight categories for the last four years, was able to regain those titles and once again becomes a two-weight undisputed champion. And on home soil again, back in Dublin. Taylor said after the win, I was nearly half offended that people were writing me off so much. It's great to prove people wrong and I'm back on top again. This is what dreams are made of, she added. Taylor's 37 now, so you've got to assume that this can't go on too much longer, although it doesn't look like she'll be retiring straight away with a trilogy fight potentially on the cards. And by that, I mean another rematch against Cameron, best of three and all that. We look forward to it. That's all for me this week, and I'll be back next time with more women's sports. Hi, Hannah here, and I'm delighted to be able to say welcome Fiona Deer, co-director of UK Strategy and Operations at the Restart Project. Thank you for joining us, Fiona. Thank you for having me. What is the Restart Project? What's your mission and how did you get involved? So we're a small charity and our mission is to fix our relationship with electronics. We're based in London and our founders about 10 years ago got really frustrated with how hard it was to fix electricals. And so they started kind of organising what we call restart parties, but which other people know as repair cafes. And for anyone who doesn't know how that works, they're not physical cafes, they're, they're kind of pop-up events where you get volunteer fixers who are there and you can take small electricals and they will help you fix whatever it is that's broken. The cool thing about it is you get to sit with them and, and understand how it works. You get to kind of see under the bonnet of your things and like you're more likely to be able to fix it in the future. That's how we started. 
But then quite quickly, there was a realization that there's only so much you can do at the downstream end. So it's like once stuff is broken and there's so many problems that are kind of in how products are made and in how manufacturers support you if you want to repair. So the Restart Project became a, bit, a campaigning organization too. And so I joined about two years ago now. My background is in climate campaigning, but I, I got more into waste and I got involved in a local a local project to, to avoid waste. And, and it felt like um, this was a really exciting way to to do campaigning and it's it's a very different in some ways it's the same as climate change in some ways it's very different because it's so tangible it's in our hands we all feel that slight discomfort when we throw something away that we're like oh it feels like someone should be able to use this but you just can't find a way you know like we all get that like it's so integral so it's quite interesting to campaign around that and and try and and change the system so that we throw away less stuff and we keep our stuff in use for longer yeah. And of course, in a cost of living crisis, if you can repair your toaster without having to buy a new toaster, then that's all for the good for the person involved as well. Definitely, definitely. And especially that's why repair cafes and restart parties are free. So you can go there and get, get it fixed for free. Obviously, toasters are really cheap to buy new and that, that has its own issues in mm. terms of environmental there's so much e-waste from people buying cheap stuff and then just automatically replacing it with more cheap stuff that then fails really quickly. But yeah, if repair cafes can help people keep things in use, it saves them money, it saves e-waste, it saves carbon dioxide emissions and everything. Yeah. It's interesting you say that thing about watching and learning because when I first learned to drive 30 odd years ago, I only drove rubbish cars, obviously, because you do when you're younger. So I either had the AA out to it or friends or my uncle poking around and I always said can you show me what you're doing so I will know how to fix my car eventually in any scenario but of course technology has changed and if you open a car Mm -hmm. bonnet now a lot of mechanics say I don't really know how to do that so the industry is to blame in a lot of ways, isn't it, for making things harder to repair. Absolutely and this is what there's, there's a lot of campaigning around what we call right to repair And it's because there's just been this slow creep towards things that just aren't made to be repaired. And that's that's like all the way through the the value chain. So it's kind of the way that they're designed. The things that are most likely to fail are very beneath, you know, you have to undo like 30 screws or like your phone battery. When when phones first came out, you could just flip out the battery if you needed to check to access it. Whereas now you have to like you need. So with my phone, it's quite an old one, but you need two different types of screwdrivers, which are unique to this kind of type of phone you know so you'd have to go and get them then you then you kind of need a special lever then you need a heat gun to get because the battery glued in it's like a full-on repair so all of these things that should be doable by ourselves just aren't and it just gets more complicated when there's like electronics involved and circuit boards and all things like that so people are really intimidated yeah I mean the price of parts also outrageous there are certain things that I don't think that I would ever dream of trying to repair. And I think that it's probably circuit boards is the difference because my Hoover broke recently and I was like, right, let's take this apart. And I was quite confident, although, like you say, a ton of screws and I had to buy a special screwdriver because the screws were so deeply embedded that my screwdriver wasn't long enough to go down. the Yeah, so I had to buy a screwdriver. But anyway, found out what was wrong with it, worked it out, ordered a new part, nearly as much as the cost of the Hoover for the part that I was searching for, which is ridiculous. Well, well done for carrying on with it and and going down that route, because obviously most people wouldn't. They wouldn't even get to the point where they find out how much the spare part is. I'm very stubborn. (laughs) Well, I'm very pleased. And you're going to value that Hoover now, aren't you? Yeah. You're you're not going to let it go easily. (laughs) No. I do have one extra screw that I don't know where it came from, but nothing's fallen off it, so... 
it, oh, that just lives that. in a little box now a random screw that one, I do. one day you'll discover it <laughs> yeah in the hope that yeah I mean because I probably just hoover it up um what sort of things in your experience are people bringing you that they want to repair the top items are I mean laptops are, are quite are quite common items that people bring in the other ones are things like lamps are really really common coming in you get hoovers lots of small like kitchen appliances and actually it's quite it's quite obvious to see why those things come in because laptops are a bit different because you can generally find laptop and phone repair places like everywhere right there aren't that many places that will fix lamps and it's really hard to find them like we've got a repair directory in london where there's 300 repair shops but only about i think it's something like there's only about three or four of them that will fix lamps and about the same number of vacuum cleaners so you know you'd have to travel across London to get it fixed so that's why they're coming into repair cafes but obviously the people want to get them fixed it's just hard to access that and and as you said the, if you add the cost of labor on top of the cost of parts it gets a bit pretty expensive yeah what is it you think that stops people attempting it is it fair is it the cost of parts is it sort of a lack of confidence in their yeah. own abilities to be honest, or is it laziness? I, think mate, <laughs> I wouldn't say laziness. I think people just don't think of it. Like we've just got into this. I think we've we've as a society we've got out of the habit of repair for lots of lots of reasons. But generally, if something breaks, you the first thought is where can I get this new? And if you're lucky, then you might think, oh, hang on a minute, I can repair it. You know, for the vast majority of people. So people don't think of it. If they do think of it, you don't necessarily know where to go, and people are kind of worried about like a high speed repairer for example they, there's there's issues with trust around that and then there's a lot of uncertainty around it too so especially if you compare it to, to the experience of buying new so if you if you want to go to a repair shop you have to find them first you don't know how, how much it's going to cost mm. you and how, how long it's going to take especially getting spare parts you don't know how long you're going to have to go without your thing yeah. so if it's something like a phone you might if you're willing to go a couple of days you that's fine it doesn't normally take that long it normally takes a couple of hours if maximum but you know it, something like a kettle you probably couldn't survive without that for a week or whatever so there's all of these uncertainties and I think the more uncertainties you add the more people just don't bother and then, then you compare that to like the certainty mm. of buying new and you can just click on something and you've got it the next day or you go to a shop and you know they'll have it like it's just kind of it's really unbalanced and I, I think it's 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 as much a problem of it's not like repair. Well, repair has got harder because of the way things are made and we have less repair shop. But also it's just comparing to like we're so used to convenience now that it just feels even harder. Is there a certain demographic that's more keen to try and repair stuff in your experience? I was talking to my brother the other day and we were talking about how there used to be a drawer in the house when we grew up that was just full of fuses and the ends cut off plugs and stuff that my dad used to hoard just in case he ever needed a spare something like that and people definitely don't do that stuff anymore so if I was going to say there was a demographic that was more keen to fix stuff I would say they were working class older men but is that a mistake you're not far off definitely if we're talking about electricals electricals and electronics then definitely there are more men who are interested in fixing but actually because we work with a lot of repair cafes that fix other things of course there's more women fixing clothes and things yeah. like that so so across the board you, it's more, it's even but if you go down to like different types of products then yeah. men men are into electricals it's generally older because it's the people that have been brought up with repair as part of their culture yeah. and, and you know like they were they were shown how to repair from a young age they were brought up with things that were easier to repair so they're doing it i'm not sure about the working class affluent thing i think there's less of an obvious trend there right i would say in terms of people that go to repair cafes often it's because of the environment so you do get slightly more affluent people probably that are just 
just going because they want, they don't want to throw something away. Yeah. And it tends to be that that the repair cafes that kind of are specifically cited in places of low income, then you get the lower income people coming. But it's it's not something that naturally that everyone necessarily goes to. But in terms of the fixes, I think it's across the board. Yeah. So what do we need to do to encourage more people to think, I can fix that? Well, <laughs> that's a long list. <laughs> because as I said, there's been this slow creep and it's a it's a, a culture and habit thing. It's a systemic thing and all of that. I think that we need government policy and we've we've just launched a kind of a set of policy asks in a declaration um, and that we try to cover it all with that so we're asking for right to repair which means that manufacturers have to make it make things to be repairable and to last longer but then also they have to provide the spare parts at a reasonable cost and then manuals so that you know how to get in into products so that's like we need it to be easier to repair in the first place then we need repair to be cheaper so there are some brilliant examples in france and austria where they have repair voucher schemes and you get kind of something like 20 to 50% off the cost of repair, which of course is brilliant. It gets people repairing and it gets people into the habit of repairing. Um, the other things we're asking for is that again in France, France is brilliant on all of this. They have a repair index. So when you buy something new, you know how repairable it is. And so you can choose, people tend to, of course, choose the more repairable products. That changes how manufacturers make things. We need more people to be trained as repairers. Like the general workforce is getting older and we're losing repairers. So there's like lots of kind of systemic things that we mm. want, but generally we need more infrastructure so we need more repair cafes more repair shops we need it to be easier to find repair i'd love there to be something like an airbnb for repair so you can just click and you know there's a way that you can click and someone mm. will come and pick up your thing and you may get a replacement all of those things that kind of take away the inconvenience that would be absolutely brilliant but again that would come from better policies that support repair and i think that people need to be ready to kind of give it a go so that's what's brilliant about repair cafes they can go along they can find out how to repair things and kind of get into the repair mindset do we also need to create so say for example my laptop breaks I mean I hope not because it's pretty new Uh, it's unrepairable do we need to create a, a kind of I suppose like an equivalent of that drawer that my dad had where we dispose of our things in a way that they can be stripped for parts as it were so that they can be used to help other people repair their things yeah, definitely. And actually, often you can sell like broken things for, you know, 50p on eBay and people will buy it for the spare parts. Mm. But just people don't think of doing that. So, 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 yeah, like I think the more that people could like try and sell or donate their stuff rather than just automatically recycling it, the better. And that's something that's, that's important to remember that kind of people think of recycling as great and it is great for things like glass and tins, but it's not great for things that could get more use. So for electricals, generally, if you can find a way to keep them in use through donating or selling them or repairing them and then keeping them yourself, then that's so much better Like in terms of the resource use and the waste and all of that stuff. So, so yes, like if you can kind of get the spare parts out there by selling your stuff that's broken, then that, that's absolutely brilliant. I think probably the size of that drawer would probably have to be quite big now because <laughs> everything's made very specifically and yeah. you know, all the specific screws and stuff. But yeah. You run an event called Repair Day, which was back in October. How did that go? Are you attracting more people? I'm, I'm guessing you are year on year. Yeah, it was really good. It, globally, it was the biggest one that we've that we've done. So there were six, 1,600 events across the world. And a lot of that, I keep mentioning France. France just went a bit crazy. They had so many events. It was brilliant. But then in the UK, there were 100 events on Repair Day. Wow. Yeah. And, and these were all kind of repair, in the most part, they're repair cafes 
that happen monthly. So it's like, it's not only a resource that's there on Reddit, it's there throughout the year. And the other cool thing was that that's, that's when we launched the declaration. And and we found that there was a, there was so much support for that. There were 100 groups signed up at launch and now we're at kind of like 250. And these are community groups, but also quite big organisations that everybody is kind of really sees that there's a problem there. They don't necessarily know how to fix it, but like they're really pleased to see that there's this kind of like, political campaign around yeah that was really helpful and it's just always brilliant just to see how much is out there and it's just a bit hidden and that's the whole point of prepare day that suddenly you see it all and you see the scale of the movement yeah I think it's also I mean it goes wider in as much as for example I had to buy some razors the other day and it was more expensive to buy new blades than it was to buy a whole new razor which just blows my mind. If I was at the point where I was washing every single penny, which I now fortunately am no longer at, I would have made the decision to create more rubbish and buy the cheaper ones, which it should just shouldn't be like that, should it? No, it shouldn't. And I think it all comes down to like the cost of our time when we, you know, like the cost of paying people to do things is expensive here, cheap in other countries. Um, But the cost of materials is really low. really 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 low so it doesn't take into account the costs to the world and to other communities to to chuck all of this stuff out it doesn't include the cost of mining and all of that stuff like and so things really need to kind of sounds awful to say like cost more so that we're then kind of spending time repairing it and like putting the effort in and valuing the stuff that we have and then you wouldn't have that situation that you had like the the disposable thing would be way more expensive and just probably wouldn't be sold yeah I, my parents bought me a telly to go to university with, and it was so old even then that it had a brown flex. I think it must have come from the 70s. Uh, and it weighed a ton. It was really, really heavy. And it lasted 20-odd years, and I've had, I think, three or four televisions since then. I always take somebody else's old television. I never buy a new television. I always take the crap television. Yeah. Well, they're not even crap. Increasingly, the televisions I get given for free are better because people are wanting something bigger, something, yeah. yeah and Which is which is great for you. Yeah. <laughs> and, but I mean, that's a good reason why we should all be trying to buy secondhand and, and stuff. Yeah. We, we did a um, study of an e-waste bin, an electrical waste bin in a waste facility earlier on this year. And we were initially looking at how much of the stuff that people had thrown away or like put for recycling, how much of that was repairable. But what we found is that kind of 36% of it wasn't even broken. So people were throwing away stuff that could totally still be used. And then there was another like 10% that um, was very easily repairable. So it's almost half of what we're throwing out could be used. So I'd love more people to be automatically just buying secondhand or refurbished yeah. stuff. And of course, donating and selling. That'd be brilliant. I think as well, this is, you know, when we talk about the environment, it's such a huge, such an enormous, monstrous project for us to tackle that as one person you think, what the hell can I do? You know, I've turned my Mm -hmm. heating down, but what is that going to do? That's just the tiniest blip. Whereas this feels slightly more, well, it's actually tangible, isn't it? Because it's a thing. I have this, I fixed this. I've done something good for the environment, you know? And I mean, turning your heating down is also really good for the environment, but I feel like you see the results slightly more in something like this. Yeah, you you literally have it in your hand. Yeah. And oh my goodness, it's so satisfying repairing something, isn't it? Yeah. If you can figure it out, you just feel so amazing. <laughs> I've done that a few times this year and it's worth it just for that, if not the waste. And I work on the principle that if it's broken, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? It's already broken. I'm either going to repair it or I'm going to end up with a, just a array of things that I can't put back together. 
then I will have to buy a new Hoover, but I might as well give it a go. Exactly. How can people get involved, either by bringing things to be repaired or by offering whatever skills they have in a repair sense? I'm hoping there's lots of fixers out there or people who are interested in getting stuff fixed. So on our website, you can see a list of different ways of, of getting things repaired. So it's the restartproject.org slash repair hyphen options and so there there's a list of upcoming repair events that so you can see what's near you there's our repair directory which is which is just in london but where you can find reliable repair there's also tips on how to repair things yourself and we've kind of got a whole load of links to brilliant organizations that show you really good tutorials if you want to get into repair that's the place to go if you're into fixing then you can find your nearest repair cafe and just volunteer and they'll absolutely love you for it um and we've got a a fixing community so so there's ways to join that there so basically you can kind of come into the folds through the restart project and if you want to get into campaigning so that kind of things are made better and that repair is more supported then we what we're trying to do right now is build up mp and political support mm. around it so you can if you go to repair reuse declaration.uk you can email your mp and, and encourage them to support it um and so what we hope is that over the next few months year that kind of the idea of repair and reuse just becomes a lot more visible and that people are hearing about it more and the politicians are hearing about it more so we can start getting some change yeah anything that gets us together in a room talking to each other is brilliant yeah and people love repair cafes for that and there's we've got there are some brilliant stories of people just really appreciating the chance to chat to people and and the reason they're called cafes is because they always have brilliant tea and cake so you can go there and have snacks and like if you have to wait a bit it's fine because you have brilliant conversations thank you so much for chatting to us fiona next time something breaks i feel inspired again to take it apart find out more brilliant i'll think of your hoover and i hope everyone would think of your hoover and the and the joy that you got from fixing it next time something breaks people should think of my hoover anyway i've got two cats god bless my hoover i'm amazed it's lasted as well as it has Welcome to the Brenda Blethen Appreciation Society. Jen, what film got rated or dated this week? This week, we watched 1998's Little Voice. The screenplay was written by Mark Herman, who also directed the film, but it's based on the 1992 play The Rise and Fall of Little Voice by Jim Cartwright, which was, in fact, written to showcase the vocal talents of its star, Jane Horrocks. Mm Mm-hmm. Friend of the show, friend of the show, Jane Horrocks. (laughs) Also stars in the film as the eponymous character alongside Brenda Blethyn as Mad Mum Mari, Michael Caine as Wheeler Dealer Sleazy Geezer, Ray Say. (laughs) Great description. He is also amazing. And Ewan McGregor, who I guess was just pretty famous at the time. He was getting there. He's definitely getting there, wasn't he? Anyway, he played Billy the Love Interest. Is that his surname? Billy the Love Interest. Billy the Love Interest. The film tells a tale of Laura, known as LV or Little Voice, a softly spoken, reclusive young woman who, mourning the death of her father, seeks solace in his old record collection. Little Voice, however, has an absolutely fucking massive voice. (laughs) Several. Yeah. Having spent all that time practising singing quite creepy songs, if we unpick them, honestly. (laughs) To her dad, yeah. To an imagined presence of her dead dad, yeah, yeah. She's really come to master a decent Shirley Bassey impersonation and Judy Garland and Marilyn Monroe, etc, etc. 
oh yeah and there's a telephone engineer called Billy who seems to fancy her or something anyway she annoys her senselessly mean mother Mari by playing her records loudly and generally being misunderstood in her bedroom while Mari scrabbles around trying to get a leg over with various men we're given to understand though in particular Ray Say a talent in inverted commas manager (laughs) known on the pub and club circuit of Scarborough where the film is set he hears LV singing and realises this is his chance to hit the big time by getting her on stage at his buddy Mr Boo's club. Are you all right? <laughs> Jim Broadbent. Oh, I'm uh, yeah. so amazing. For once, not lazily cast here. I think he's he's so lazily cast so much of think? the time. I oh. really think so. I, I see love him. Jim Broadbent in something and I'm just like, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. He's going to play Jim, Jim Broadbent. Yeah. Great. It's hair in this. It's oh, it's incredible. I know. Anyway, there's a bit of a problem here. Uh, LV does not like singing in public. Can Ray say coerce Mad Mum Mari into coercing her neglected and abused daughter onto the stage by breadcrumbing a relationship for the desperate old slag? A fire ensues. The end. The film made around $21 million from a budget of about $4.5 million and was generally well-received by critics who loved Horrocks' impersonations. And, you know, why wouldn't you? So good. I'm going to say amazing a lot during oh, yeah. this. It's amazing. Yeah, she's, she's very good at that. But much like me, they couldn't really see the point of the love story subplot, the structure, or indeed some of the characterisation. Still, got to love a funny Brit, right, Americans? Yeah. And they did. Though Horrocks' little voice is considered the star of the show, it was Blithin who was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Of course, the film was also nominated for all of the BAFTAs, six in total, but only Michael Caine actually won any awards, a Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy Film and British Supporting Actor of the Year at the London Film Critics Circle Awards. There was also a win for Best Adapted Song at the Online Film and Television Association Awards. I feel, Mick, and perhaps she can correct me if I'm wrong on this, that this film was quite a big deal at the time, but it was also like sort of the heyday of Ewan McGregor before he sullied himself with Obi-Wan Kenobi. (laughs) I saw this at the cinema, and I saw a lot of films at the cinema that year because my best mate had just learned to drive and we did what any right-minded teenager would do and drove to Ipswich a lot. So I've definitely seen this before, but I think probably only the once. I do remember there was a bit of a buzz about it. Mick... Do you remember there being a buzz about it? And did you watch it? I do remember there being a bit of a buzz about it. And I don't think it was just because of Ewan McGregor. I think Mark Herman was a pretty big name after Brastoff, which is absolutely beautiful. Oh, did he do? Yeah. I did not know that. Okay. Also stars Ewan McGregor and an incredible performance from Pete Postlethwaite. And I think Little Voice followed on the back of that, I think about two years afterwards. So really quite hot on its heels film-wise. And yeah, I think people were blown away by what Jane Horrocks can do, and rightly so. I didn't see it at the cinema, I don't think I saw it at the time, but I have seen it before a couple of times. Uh, It very much appeals to me. I love it. It's very northern, I think. I think Michael Caine is just fucking incredible in it. I think Jane Horrocks is incredible in it. I think Brenda Blethyn rightly took that award because she is just superb. And I don't agree with the kind of senselessly mean descriptor of Mari. She's awful. I think she's awful. That is my, like, my, a big caveat. She's particularly awful to LV. But I think she's become hard because she's struggling. 
And I think they actually get that across quite well. And there are moments where she's like, she can see that she's not all bad, but she reverts to being a prick would be my take on it. Also, she's very funny. She's very funny. So my main criticism of this film is that I think she's totally two-dimensional. Oh. I think they, there's absolutely no explanation for why she's such a bitch. She's just horrible. And like, yeah, you're right. You can see moments. I think Brenda Bleffin is insanely good in it. I love Bleffin. Like, who wouldn't? Exactly. And like I was going to say, like, Michael Caine is the only person to have actually taken any awards home for this. But like, she is just fucking too good. Yeah. I think what she does with the character is incredible. I think the character is very badly drawn. Like, there's no explanation as to why she is the way she is. There's no motivation for, like, for her. I don't, I just, I don't get it. I think some people are just mean and that is a thing. But I'm not disagreeing with you because I think blame mother is so lazy. And that's absolutely what's going Mm -hmm. on here. And absolutely idolise dad and mum's to blame for everything that's wrong. Uh, I do think that's very, very lazy as narrative tropes go. And it's at use here. But I feel like Mari's tough because that's the way she was brought up. There's a there's a sort of legacy there. And she has got those moments of softness. And there's a bit in the film that confuses me for reasons that you've just outlined, really. So when she sees that her house is on fire... She goes, my baby, LV. She's she's genuinely like, my daughter's in there. But then the next time we see her with LV, she's bitter and nasty and spiteful. And so it doesn't quite add up. I would have liked to have seen a bit more done with those huge contrasts in her character. Because I think people can have those huge contradictions in their character. Yeah. Of course they can. You know, you see it in her eyes from time to time, like the humanity of her when he's tearing a strip off her at the end. Oh, it's awful. And, you know, you see the sadness in her eyes and there is like a a desperation to it. And I'm like, yeah, I think she does that so well. But it's just I think that she really makes the most of a part that is not very well written. And the the thing like, you know, mum gets blamed for everything while dead dad gets to, you know, live on on his pedestal. Right, that's probably quite realistic in a lot of ways, you know, in terms of mum has to bring up child by herself and so she's the only one there to take the flack for all the things that are wrong, right? yeah. Get it completely. But this doesn't challenge the validity of that at all. No, it doesn't. It just takes it as a a fact. This is it. But this is, I suppose it is a fact for LV and as much as we see other people's characters as well, we are very much seeing things from LV's point of view a lot of the time. I read our old pal Roger Ebert's thoughts and his thing that really I was like, oh, Roger, I think you've absolutely misunderstood this. He was like, does it make sense that Michael Caine's character who starts off really nice, why does he go bad at the end? And you're like, he's never nice. He's a horrible, manipulative bellend. I agree with you, but I guess I can see like the viciousness with which he attacks her. I don't think you see that side of him until that moment where he's desperate at that point because he owes people money, needs to do something, blah, blah, blah. I think that's my main criticism of it in general is that I don't think it builds the kind of backstories of any of the characters particularly well. Maybe. I'm not disagreeing with you on that because I think you definitely have a point. I think with Kane's character, with Ray Say, yeah, you described him perfectly. You know, this wheeler dealer, really sleazy arch manipulator 
he's a charmer and charmer is like a charming until it doesn't serve them anymore and that's exactly what we see there so i don't think that's a poor characterization or a poor depiction of that kind of character at all i think it's spot on because it can quite often surprise someone when a charmer turns sour and has a go at them and you really do see that with mari when she is just like where the fuck did this come from and I, i actually think that is accurate for a lot of a lot of blokes like that also you're right that desperation it's these people are lashing out when they're desperate and i think mari's been desperate for a long time i think ray's been desperate for a long time i mean he's he's the agent for a troupe of dancers called take fat for fuck's sake who danced to chumbawamba like he's not doing brilliantly i read something quite interesting that said the fact that he's like the southern voice in a very northern film and it is very northern set in scarborough a northern yeah. seaside town that always feels our seaside towns particularly in the north feel like 50 years behind the rest of the uk sometimes in the way that they like end of the pier acts kind of thing they are still a a big deal in some of these places and they're which often I very deprived around, often very deprived and seasonal as well so really bleak for a lot of months of the Is year it? or can be you know with all british weather and stuff and the fact that he is southern and has found himself in this town actually does give him a bit of a backstory in that he's not done very well down south. This is where he's trying to make his fortune, his name. I don't know. Everyone's such a small player, but that means that the small things are are so much bigger to them. They mean so much more to them. Because you're a small player, it's not like you can afford to lose so much because you've got very, very little, if anything at all, to lose. And I think that does come across in the character's of Ray say and Mari, particularly because they're of an age. Whereas LV, when Mari says to her, how am I supposed to start yeah. again? I can't not feel sympathy for Mari because how is she supposed to start again? Whereas LV is young and, you know, embarking on, and I agree, a sort of pointless love affair. But she has got a whole life ahead of her, particularly now she's been freed from her cage like a bird with all the subtle metaphors that there are for that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe I just wasn't looking hard enough. I suppose we could deduce of Mari that she wasn't happily married because she's had a lot of affairs. We only That's get we one side her. of the story, don't we? But yeah, I, I also think it's valid to think that she's just not a very nice character. Yeah. She's horrible to her friend as well. She lashes out at Sadie. Could, I could invent a backstory for her. She's ended up with LV, with a man she's not really into. Uh, you know, he's dead. She's left holding the baby. Maybe she didn't really want that life for herself. It is what it is. Now she's got to make the best of it. From her perspective, the best of that is to, you know, hook up with... Have a drink and shag around, yeah. Yeah, and this this exotic Ray Say character who's apparently a real catch. Well, but Tamari, but we can see right from the off that he is far from... Even Mr Boo, who is a similar vibe but not as awful as Ray say, or we don't get to see him being as awful. I can imagine it. It's, you know, he's aware that Ray's a bad one, but Mari is so desperate. I think she's a portrait of a desperate woman who does mean things. Yeah, I'd take that. Oh, what about Jane Horrocks? What about LV? I think she's great. I think she's incredible as this shy, nervy girl. I'm not sure how old she's supposed to be, like why she's Mm. living at home and not speaking. I don't know how old she's supposed to be, but I'm guessing probably like 17, 18. 
She's about 30 in real life in this film, yeah, I think. Totally. Yeah. But she has got quite a young face. She, yes, yeah, yeah, just, yeah. She's very little. She's very petite, isn't she, Jane? Mm. As we know from when we accidentally got her drunk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for when you're home, Jane. And I think she does that fragility very, very well so that when she does the big, like the massive when she's on stage, it works beautifully as a juxtaposition. And obviously, she's just phenomenal. Those voices, even when she's not singing, when she's just doing like the Wizard of Oz voices and stuff, she's absolutely astounding. And I love her in it. And I think she's perfect in it. And it's written for her. But Brenda Blethyn steals it for me. And Kane probably before Horrocks, which is saying something about those performances, really. I guess because I know how old she is. It's sort of a bit like infantilizing. But maybe she is supposed to be that young. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Like. She's tucked herself into herself, hasn't she? Yeah. But if she's not meant to be that young, because I did look everywhere and there's nothing that says how old she's supposed to be. But if she is supposed to be in her mid-twenties, this film made 20-odd years ago, then Mari would be like, why are you still here? Like, I can't get yeah, on with yeah. my life because you've gone into a cocoon and I'm still stuck with you, which isn't a nice way for a parent to feel about a child. But, you know, I don't think Mari's very nice. Her friend, who's played by Annette. My mum always knows this actress's name. She's been in like literally everything ever. But it's like Annette Badlands or Annette Bablands or something like that. I think she's brilliant as well as Mari's sort of long-suffering buddy. Okay. That's the only impression I can do from this film. <laughs> okay. I have to say that I find this film quite depressing oh i think it's massively depressing it's really bleak until the very end even when she's on stage giving that absolute powerhouse performance in a tiny shitty northern seaside venue it's still bleak because you're like she doesn't want it like this isn't gonna go anywhere everything's doomed to failure the only little bit of hope in it is when Little Voice finds her speaking voice and finally sticks up for herself with Mari and in this burgeoning romance with the pigeon boy. But I'm not really very invested in that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I think it's really bleak and depressing. But then um, a lot of the stuff that I read around it was like, oh, it's a real feel-good film and like blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, it's it's really miserable. (laughs) I suppose it might make you feel better about your own life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's <laughs> no electrical fires here just yet. So, uh, yeah, that fire, like, the fire investigation happened quickly, eh? They're back in the house, like, the same night. What are you doing? That yeah. wouldn't be allowed. Well, they, they could sneak in, though, for dramatic purposes, Jen. Apparently there's going to be a TV series of this as well, which Jim Cartwright is going to be involved in the writing of but i also saw that there was a tv yeah, series yeah jj abrams right which i couldn't figure out whether or not it actually had anything to do with this Did, no it doesn't do you know it doesn't have anything to do with it they've just got the same name but i guess because it says something about it's uh, the thing that i read about it was it something to do with like finding your authentic voice and i was like Oh God! So like, how twenty twenties does that sound <laughs> that, that could be something to do with this but or maybe they've like taken bits of it or maybe maybe those guys need to sue someone i don't know <laughs> i think the series in question is about an aspiring singer-songwriter a teenage human with a guitar 
finding their way in the world and it got absolutely panned. So I won't be doing any more investigating on this matter, Jen. Thanks for your time. Okay. Okay. All right. Thanks, Mick. <laughs> I think it's a great film. I, I don't love it. I'm probably not going to rush to watch it again, but I think it's so beautifully performed by I just... Oh, watch Kane and Blethen do their thing all day long. Their sparring is absolutely... I mean, it's horrific, but it's so brilliant. I can't um can't really get on board with Michael Caine. Sorry, don't at me. I just... I just Can I at on. you now, right now, in person? Sounds like you're going to, Mick. Go on. Do you not think he's amazing in this? No, not really. I don't oh. think he's a great actor, like, ever. <laughs> I think when he's singing It's Over, it is so funny, but so, like, he's looking at those people who are going to rip the shit out of him, like, physically, and he's just like, what do I do now? And I I ended up feeling a teeny tiny bit sorry for this horrible man. That is some powerful acting, I think. Yeah. Oh, I think he's great in it. And I think him and Broadbent together are very, very good, too. It's probably one of his finest performances of this particular Michael Caine era. Also, Jen, the swarm, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> Obviously, notwithstanding his uh, <laughs> standout performance in 19, whatever the fuck it was, is uh, the swarm. Bees! Bees! Shout African bee facts at me! <laughs> oh, and if you haven't watched the swarm uh, and you've not listened to us talking about it on this podcast, where have you been? Get yourself back through that back catalogue. Big recommends. Seriously. What a time um, to be alive. Play a drinking game for every time they talk about bees. <laughs> well, Mick, I'm going to ask the question, rated or dated? I think it's really rated, yeah. And I don't think it's dated. I think seaside towns probably still have a lot of people who would see themselves in that. Or small working class towns would absolutely relate. I know that I recognise a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, as you know, spend half or more of my time in a small seaside, seaside town. town. So yeah, I'd say like it's a pretty, pretty accurate representation of a uh, of an English seaside town, a once glorious English seaside town. Yeah, totally on hard times, you know. So yeah, I think it's. I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's dated, and I do think it's rated, and I do think the performances in it are great. But I was just a bit like, eh, yeah, I'm glad it wasn't more than an hour and thirty seven minutes. A perfect time time slot for Jen there on the on a film. <laughs> Okay, Mick, is it is it you next? It is me. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No, it's 1978 Superman. What? That's exciting. It is exciting. Yeah. Standard issue for all women.